welcome my sisters and others to what uh, will indeed I hope be an interesting conference about sexuality. My name is James Allison, as you can hear from my accent, I'm British. I'm talking to you from my talking to you from my home in Madrid and looking forward to a time when perhaps uh, I can meet some of you in person, which will be a great pleasure. So I want to thank Jonathan very much indeed for having organized this and for having invited me. In as far as I have any uh, expertise at all in the matter, it's uh, uh, being not only uh, that I would pretend and hope to be a theologian, but also that I'm a, a, an openly gay man and uh, a Catholic and a Catholic priest. Uh, so if you like, it, all those are in the background to what I have to say about uh, uh, sexuality. But don't be too alarmed. I'm not going to principally talk about homosexuality. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the background to even getting to questions of sexuality. Because so often discussions in this area uh, tend to um, base themselves on proof texts, going to certain passages of scripture and saying this means this means this, these, this. Um, and if you do that, of course, then it's always a question of who's the better debater, who's got their points in, um, lined up in an order, and it's simply a, a, a slightly absurd macho fencing match. Uh, and that doesn't actually help us move on at all. One of the things I've learned over time is that the things that are at stake behind discussions of human sexuality uh, when it comes to matters of religion are hidden and much deeper than the actual discussions about sex themselves. Uh, if there were discussions about sex, uh, they could happen fairly logically, <laughs> but as it is, most of the conclusions that people have uh, have been arrived at by a method that is other than logical, uh, which is perfectly reasonable. We are all relational rather than logical people, and can only be moved by changes that are relational rather than logical. So I want to get to what I think is the key um, issue at work behind our discussions of uh, sexuality in the church. And, obviously from my perspective, particularly homosexuality, though as, as I hope you will see, that's only one of uh, the issues involved. And I'm assuming something here when talking to you. I'm assuming that I'm not talking to debaters. I'm assuming that I'm talking to people, most of whom would like to be able to move on in this area. If I may characterize what I hope is some of you, it will be people of this sort, people who say, yeah, you know, we've learned by personal experience to, to like, <laughs> maybe even to love, are uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and increasingly visibly trans, uh, neighbors, friends, sons, daughters, relatives, colleagues. Um, we've learned to do that simply because we've met them and know them and like them and get along with them. And yet, we're kind of half-tortured by the sense that if we were to take Christianity seriously, we wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, and that, if you like, what we're doing is some kind of special pleading with relation to these people. Um, some kind of, well, yes, I, I want to be Christian, and all that's true, but I need to treat these people differently, perhaps. And perhaps that's because I'm bowing to the spirit of this world, or something like that. There's a certain nervousness that goes along with uh, the sense that maybe you're treating such people as exceptions.
What I want to say is, no, you're not. Um, what's problematic here is the misunderstanding of basic Christianity. So what I will want to be sharing with you, I hope, and I hope this will become increasingly clear, is that at the root of discussions concerning sexuality, there is really a discussion about what is at the heart of Christianity, what is Christianity really all about. Once we've seen that, it then becomes clear, very easily clear, how things like our learning process about gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual and trans people uh, has been coming about is absolutely an integral part of what you would expect from the outworking of the Christian gospel. Um, so not something that's an exception to Christianity, but something that is the dynamic of Christianity. And that's really what I'm uh, wanting to, to share with you today. Now, let me start by recounting to you an experience, excuse my slightly shaky um, setup here, recounting an experience I had when giving a talk about these matters in a, a college in California once. I was privileged that a very senior member of the Presbyterian Church uh, came and uh, listened to my uh, presentation at the end. Um, he remarked on something which seemed to me to be absolutely uh, true and which I'd reached by other means. He said this, that he had been attending meetings of the Presbyterian Church uh, over 30 years, and this was in the early 2000s, so really since the 1980s, he'd been um, attending meetings of the Presbyterian Church where they had begun to uh, talk about matters LGBT. And that the presenting issue was always matters LGBT, but that was never, never the real issue that was behind the discussions. The real issue behind all the discussions was the understanding of atonement. If you hold on to the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement, which is or has been for many evangelical leaders, um, the cornerstone of orthodoxy, an orthodoxy uh, that really was brought into being, it was suggested by St. Anselm uh, in, the, in the 11th century and then became hardened by Luther and then much more by Calvin into um, something much clearer and more rigid and has since passed in an even more rigid version into being the sort of banner of orthodoxy for certain understandings of what the gospel is amongst evangelical groups. But his point was that if you hold to that, there is no way you can seed an inch on matters LGBT. If your understanding of the atonement is other than that, then moving on becomes possible. So the real argument is not about matters LGBT, the real argument is about the atonement. Now, uh, I'd like to suggest to you that, in fact, the uh, penal substitution theory of the atonement, with which some of you would have been brought up, uh, is not the definitive Christian understanding of Christ's atonement. It's comparatively modern, um, and it locks us into some frightening places, uh, which is not what Jesus going up to his death was really about. So let me just, first of all, give you um, a quick 
uh, outline of that theory uh, so as to explain why it is that it exercises such powerful appeal uh, in this area. Uh, you probably know the, the story, the base storyline goes like this. God created everything and everything was good. God then created humans as well and they were especially good but Adam, tempted by Eve, tempted by the serpent, fell and owing to the fall human nature was radically depraved such that we became capable of no good at all there was no good in us um, and uh, therefore we needed a complete salvation um, and here was the problem Adam and therefore all of us have committed this sin against God's honor uh, against God's justice uh, and because it was against God it was an infinite sin which we were utterly incapable of uh, remedying. There was no price that we could pay that would be sufficient for the damage that we had done in justice. So uh, God wondered who would be able to do this because God did love humans, though he was pretty angry at their sinfulness. Um, and Jesus said, well, I'm uh, God so I can make an infinite gift and I can become a human and therefore it can be a, a human divine infinite gift in other words I can pay off the bill so God said all right Jesus I send you to the earth in order to be crucified at the hands of sinful men uh, and in their crucifying you they will be paying the price or at least you will be paying the price and they will be the immediate cause of your paying the price thereby executing you but your suffering uh, will be the price that is taken to pay the bill and because of that any of them who agree to be covered by your blood any of them who agree to accept that what you did was a gift to set them free from their sin anyone who are covered by your blood uh, I will give them a totally new person their previous lives will be covered over as by a sheet and they will have a new life given to them. They will become sons and daughters of God, um, and uh, they will become entirely new uh, creatures, saints, in fact. And those who don't, well, they will go to a place of gnashing and, and wailing. Um, but that's the important thing. The important thing is someone will have paid the price. So anybody who recognizes the price has been paid is able to get on the inside, uh, to live, if you like, inside the eye of the hurricane rather than living on the edges of the hurricane where all the damage is done. Um, so, now you can understand that if that is your basic understanding of what the grace, the grace in Christianity looks like, uh, it looks like Jesus paying a price to satisfy just vengeance, uh, just anger on behalf of God. If that's what your understanding of Christianity looks like, then it means that the paying the price is terribly important because the price has to be a price for something well for what for sin how do we know what sin is well because it's described mostly in the old testament but with some help from the new and one of the things that is perfectly clear according to this uh, understanding of of sin from the old testament and the new is that there are certain things that are sins and can never be thought to be other than sins amongst them and this is particularly uh, in the basis of uh, matters lgbt uh, amongst them, homosexuality is clearly against God's plan. It was clearly something thought to be a sin from the beginning. Therefore, anybody who suggests 
that maybe, just maybe, being gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans is not an abomination. They are diminishing the price which Jesus paid. In other words, it goes directly against the holiness of God if these people are suddenly declared to be good when in fact they're bad, uh, when they allow themselves to be who they are rather than being penitent like everybody else has to be penitent for their sinfulness and their awfulness for their radical depravity. So again, it's when people are radically depraved humans and one of their signs of their radical depravity is their sexual orientation, which therefore must either be cured in some cases or at the very least uh, lived in perfect uh, celibacy, chastity without any attempt to, to follow these passions uh, which are proper to that person. So you can understand, that's a pretty powerful package. If that is what you think salvation is, then the ability to talk uh, with anything other than horror, really, with gayness and people, is going to be very difficult. Very difficult. What I'd like to suggest is that that picture of salvation is uh, not useful in a whole variety of ways, uh, but principally because it's not uh, what Scripture bears witness to, and it's not what the teaching of the Church over 2,000 years has actually uh, come to understand to be the case. In fact, if you like, I'd like to say that it's not conservative enough. <laughs> um, it has Jesus paying a price to God rather than God giving a gift of himself to us in Jesus. Uh, what I'd like to suggest, and this is the center of, of my understanding of Christianity, and I would suggest a, a more deeply conservative understanding of Christianity than the one I just outlined to you, is that, uh, if you like, there is an angry divinity within the Christian understanding of salvation, and that angry divinity is us. We humans are the ones who are resentful, angry, constantly needing our wrath assuaged so that we don't fight and attack each other and destroy each other. And that God, in his love for us, understanding exactly how we do this, we do it by creating our unity, by ganging up against someone and throwing them out, decided to come into our midst as the one to whom these things happen, so as to undo that mechanism forever. The last able, the true able, was undoing Cain's damage to the first Abel. The first Adam was not disobedient, but was obedient. He allowed himself to be given into our midst, into the hands of sinful men, so that we might do with him as we did, not because he wanted that, but because he wanted to show us what we were doing, not to rub our faces in it, but to say, hey guys, you can play other game. There is another way of being human. You know, I'm happy to overlook all these things. I'm not interested in punishing you for having done this to me. This is not an accusation against you. This is an illustration for you of my love for you. I want you to understand that, yes, you are inclined to build up your unity, your togetherness, your belonging, your sense of good and bad over against someone else considered evil whom you 
throw out and then make ourselves feel good about. We understand that that's, I understand that's a permanent temptation for you. The trouble about it all is that it's a fake reality that you're creating. You are dehumanizing yourselves. You're diminishing yourselves, denigrating yourselves by participating in that game. And by coming into the midst of you, following everything that the prophets said was going to happen, by coming into the midst of you um, as the one who you throw out, not because I needed to pay something to God, I am God, but because I needed to offer something to you so that you could understand what love looks like. If anything I'm offering to God, it's simply the act of obedience by which I'm obeying him in showing who he is to you. Jesus engaging in that exercise, what that means is that it's the whole of our reality that is um, broken open. Our sense of good and evil, our sense of what is right and what is wrong, what belonging means. And this, uh, which I think is tremendously important, is frequently enough exactly what Jesus is doing. When we think of all the discussions which Jesus has with scribes and Pharisees concerning the law in the New Testament. Time and time again, he goes back to first principles, to something that was true of creation uh, and which has become dulled by the law, by our legal application for it, because the law becomes a tool by which we judge each other. And in judging each other, we create a good and bad according to our measure. The difficulty is, coming to understand that God has no measure. He's not interested in our badness. He wants us to come to life. He wants to bring us into being. And that this is a completely different picture of God. There is no violence in this God at all. There's no out to get you. What God is effectively saying is, you want to know what I look like? I look like the kind of person you get rid of. Your class fairy, your absolutely hated person, your traitor, your blasphemer, your seditious one, the enemy of all that you hold good. That's what it looks like to be God. And I'd be happy to occupy that place, not because I want to, as I said, to, to drive your faces into it, but because I wanted you to know that even when you are doing that, even when you're pushing someone into that place, I love you. I love you at your very, very worst. It's because of that that there's really nothing you can do to get away from me. There's, there's no outside to my love. I really want you to know that so that you can start to grow into my love. No amount of persecution or that will take you away from me. There's, there's, my love for you is complete. That's what I want you to know. I want you to know that I occupy this place so that you would never need to be frightened of death, of accusation, your own and other people's, ever again. And that you would therefore start to be able to live as sons and daughters of God. Now, in the New Testament, one of the ways in which Jesus teaches us what he's going to do is walking his disciples through it, actually explaining to them three times announces their that he's going to be crucified, they don't understand. He has to constantly try to teach them, to bring them down, to understand what the self-giving of the Son of God is going to look like. 
But one of the signs he performs on his way into uh, Jerusalem, or one of the many of the signs he performs on his way into Jerusalem, are ways of loosening, if you like, people's tie to the books of the law. He's not abolishing the law. He's showing what a fulfilled law would look like. And it doesn't look at all judgmental. So he heals people who are bent over, therefore who have dropsy, who according to the law ought to be treated in a certain way. He resolves problems <coughs> uh, by bringing new creation into being. At every stage, creation is opposed, the reality of the one creating or bringing into being, is opposed to the legalistic uh, clamping down on things so as to make us good. But, and here's the really important thing, one of the things that he does is to promise us the Holy Spirit. And why is this so important? We've tended to think of the Holy Spirit as a kind of a bit player sometimes, when we can get tremendously enthusiastic about the Holy Spirit. But it's uh, rare that we consider how vital the Holy Spirit is to the whole of Jesus' project. Because he's going up to the cross. He knows that in going up to his death, he will in fact be achieving the beginnings of the new creation, the end of the old creation. When, in fact, in St. Luke's Gospel, it's rather beautifully uh, shown because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he kneels and blood runs down, well, not blood, the sweat runs down his face, uh, looking like blood because it's mixed with red earth. So Adam, uh, he's the first Adam, Adam meaning the earth, and Adam meaning red. Uh, and blood, these words all combine together to have the first Adam finally being obedient uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we get to the end of, we get to the beginning of Genesis there. And then <coughs> the sun goes out when he's on the cross. Um, so we're back to the first day of Genesis. And then at his death, he <sighs> breathes out. Let's say he gives the spirit. So the spirit, which had been hovering before the creation, now this is the spirit that is being given, no longer hovering over creation, but the spirit given to remake creation from within. This is going to be the new creation in his image. It's gone backwards uh, through Genesis right to the very beginning so that Jesus is making possible the new creation. St. Luke brings that out very clearly. That it's brought out in other ways in St. John and, and, and in other Gospels. But St. Luke's is a particularly beautiful, running backwards through Genesis on his way to the cross. Um, one of the powerful things uh, that happens here is, is that Jesus is aware that he's giving something that will in fact be the whole of his life's work to people so that God, if you like, will now become available to them in a completely new way, sideways on, not from above, as if people were waiting for a paternal voice, but sideways through the fraternal voice that comes from Jesus. God had said this several times during the Gospel, this is my son, listen to him. The only time we have a paternal voice in the New Testament is to tell people to listen to the fraternal voice. So the Holy Spirit, if you like, is the fraternal living out, <coughs> achieved uh, by Jesus, and made available to us as the Creator, God, but it is the Creator. It is the same Spirit that was that was uh, floating over the world in the first place. And what does that mean? It means that as the Holy Spirit, this uh, sideways God, beds down in the midst of us, 
absolutely at the fraternal level. It's teaching us to have access to what is. This is one of the dimensions of the Holy Spirit that we typically don't remember. We're used to it much more in a personal way or maybe for particular inspiration uh, for either individuals or for groups. But rarely do we remember that it is the Spirit is the structuring principle of creation. Within the Holy Spirit there is divine wisdom. Uh, divine wisdom was well understood in the Hebrew Scriptures, and you can look up the different passages from the wisdom literature in the Hebrew Scriptures to see this. It was well understood that, <clears throat> that the Spirit, wisdom, is the way uh, that God makes the intelligibility of things available to us. If you like, there is a logic, there is a reason, there is a, uh, uh, things work because they all hang together, sense, to uh, the understanding of creation and wisdom. This is something which we Christians so easily forget, that the giving of the Holy Spirit is not meant to make us float off somewhere else. It's meant to bed us down into the reality of what is, so that we can become the living sons and daughters of God. We remember the symptoms of what is, those who are not only symptoms of it, but actually its heirs, able to understand it, to live it out, to participate consciously in the life of the Spirit, which means participate consciously into the bringing into being, the, the becoming of what it's supposed to be, of creation. The way uh, this is normally made clear in the Acts of the Apostles is the process by which the Holy Spirit, having come down on them, gradually beds down in the Apostles so that they learn to be able to undo things which seemed to be binding through the books of Deuteronomy and particularly Leviticus in uh, the scriptures so that they gradually start to be able to stand loose to a whole lot of things. Uh, food requirements, clothing requirements, the possibility of baptizing eunuchs, uh, all of these things start to uh, disappear. And then, famously, in Acts 10, you get the absolutely key moment when Peter's on the roof of the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa, and he has the vision of the sheets, or maybe sails, because the word could be either, uh, let down, in which there are all the beasties possible to be imagined, and he's told to take and eat, kill and eat. Actually, the word is sacrifice and eat. Thuse is sacrifice and eat. And he says, no, Lord, far be it from me to uh, touch anything, uh, to eat anything uh, that is pure or unclean. And God says to him three times what God has called uh, pure, you must not call. What God has called clean, you must not call impure. So it's three times he's told that. A reminder that he had refused Jesus three times before, uh, famously at the cock crow, he was told that he would deny Jesus three times before the cock crowed. Uh, so he's being taken to an uncomfortable place uh, by this vision. And then immediately uh, after this vision, he hears a great voice call out uh, from outside. And actually, because Luke is a genius, that verb, the cry out, is exactly the same in Greek as the verb used of the cock crying out. So on both occasions he hears someone crying out, but the first time it was a cock, the second time it was 
some messengers from Cornelius the Centurion who've come to bring him to the Gentile house so that he can tell them whatever it is that he's going to tell them. They don't know what he's going to tell them, but they've been summoned. I mean, Cornelius was told by an angel to summon him to tell them something. So Peter goes, and on his way, he puts, uh, puts it all together. He begins to see that his shamed fear of being associated with Jesus as Jesus was taken into the place of the accursed, the impure, the rejected one, was part of the same package as keeping yourself different from other people because they had impure, uh, unclean customs. It was part of the same package. And that now that Jesus had died and appeared amongst them as forgiveness, that world was at an end. In other words, that the holiness code of the book of Leviticus, which was after all what describes all the different sorts of beasties that you're not supposed to eat, explain which ones you could eat, which ones you couldn't eat, with all sorts of interesting reasons being uh, assumed by uh, anthropologists ever since as to why it should be these and not these and so on and so forth. But it included obviously famously pigs, shrimp, uh, a whole lot of other things uh, that are not allowed to be to, to, to eaten under the holiness code, which was un understood not to be strictly a moral code, but a way of showing one's difference from the pagan impure other with all their abominations. But now Jesus has occupied the place of the impure abomination, the other. So that's no longer a driving force in holiness. In fact, holiness looks like the giving of yourself into that place, not the protecting yourself from it by all sorts of cover-up. So as Peter goes to the place, he's working through these things, and when he gets to the Gentiles, he's become aware uh, that something is going on. So when he gets there, he comes into the house, which is already a, a brave thing for him to do, because it's already breaking a part of the holiness code, and um, he tells them, God has told me not to call any human profane or unclean. And then he gives them a talk about what had happened with Jesus, about his works, his teaching, how he was put to death by being hanged from a tree. And he's here speaking to people who would have known their Deuteronomy, so he was put to death under a curse, uh, because that's what it says in the book of Deuteronomy. So this, this person occupied this place of abjection, of the being cast out one. And while He's talking to Cornelius' household, who had been God-fearer, that to say that they had attended synagogue but as second-class citizens because they weren't circumcised, they hadn't got, they hadn't bought into the holiness code. The Holy Spirit comes down upon them. And Peter and those who come with him from Jerusalem are utterly astounded because uh, they were used to this happening to Jews. It was completely unexpected for this to be happening among Gentiles because that means that the holiness code no longer is uh, obligatory. God can make holy, produce holiness in the midst of Gentiles starting from where they are without them having to pass through rituals of purification first. And this, the day of the first Gentile baptism, is one of the most significant days in the history of the world precisely because of this reality. It's when Judaism went universal. And it went universal precisely as all its best and most central insights turned out to be working against 
the restriction of it to a form of holiness that was over against others. Okay, now, why is this important? It's important because it shows that the working of the Holy Spirit uh, didn't, as it were, guarantee the price that Jesus had paid in the sense of saying, okay, all these sins now must be, uh, you must follow them exactly the same way as was done in the Old Testament or else Jesus didn't pay the right price. On the contrary, Jesus paid the price for the whole of the human dynamic that creates goodness by contrast with wicked others. That's what his being cursed on the tree was. That's what enables Gentiles, like me and like most of you, I imagine, uh, to be brought on on the inside of the life of God's love for God's people that had previously been manifested only amongst the Jews. This is a quite extraordinary moment. And it's part of the process by which, as St. Paul understood very clearly, thereafter, we have to work out what is good and bad for ourselves. This is one of the extraordinary uh, things which we forget that was so central to the beginning of Christianity. You remember a discussion which Paul has with some amongst the Corinthians, and they are saying, nothing is unlawful, which means I can do anything. And these people, they had clearly understood that Jesus' resurrection and how that had been handled by Peter did mean, in fact, that the law no longer prescribed anything for them. It, it was just there, M mute guideposts from the past. And Paul's response is very interesting. He said, yes, it's true. Nothing is unlawful, but not everything is appropriate or convenient or good for you. It's difficult for us to know exactly how to translate that word, because convenient for us means uh, something rather cheap, whereas convenient, something which is appropriate, proper. And it's that distinction, learning to work out those things in the holiness code, which were part of uh, goodness and badness over against other people. We do this so as not to be like them. And those things, which are good or bad because they are good or bad for us. This, if you like, is the, the exciting adventure of the moral life uh, amidst, uh, in, in, in the world of the Holy Spirit, where we can count on the Spirit of God to be revealing to us what is really true and how we can get with its dynamic, how we can become conscious participants in the unfolding of God's wisdom, God's eternal law, if you like, of creation, which is bringing into being what really is, instead of the rather diminished version of what is in which we currently live and have done always, because we've been inclined to close it down. Now, it's in that sphere and with that background that it becomes possible to begin to consider matters LGBT. I don't want to go very far in this with you because I've already talked uh, for long enough. But I hope you can see that what is at uh, stake here is not uh, why we should be following the law and why are we not. But given that the law is moot, 
what is in fact good for us. Because we understand that God only tells us what is good as good for us. He tells us what is bad. Doesn't say, doesn't God doesn't, doesn't say something is bad simply because I want you to avoid it. He only says things are bad if they're going to do us harm. This is part of a, the, the loving process of giving us God's law, making God's law known to us. That's part of the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. It's why Jesus Christ was the, the cruci Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because from that place of having undone the whole of the structure of how we hold things together, he is opening up for us the structure of what really is, how it is brought into being by the Creator, and how it is structured from within, bringing intelligibility to us. So the whole question then becomes, when it comes to talking about matters of sexuality and matters of uh, uh, what we now call LGBT and other, uh, other letters in the acronym, um, the question there is always, what are we discovering about these, our sisters and brothers? Are we talking about people who are in some sense uh, being blind to pathologies, disguising the fact that what they're doing is some or other, some form of trick? Or, over time, are we learning to discover that in fact what we thought of as forms of evil are in fact givens within creation which we can come to respect and love. The phrase I use here with relation to uh, LGBT people is are we defective uh, forms of existence uh, who must control our defects so as not to screw everything for everybody else? You know, the dangerous contaminants who might bring about the collapse of society? Or are we people who live with uh, a non-pathological minority variant in the human condition? Big left-handed is a classic example of a non-pathological minority variant in the human condition. Well, the only way that can be found out is when the reaction of the majority is no longer to throw stones at the weirdo. A reaction which becomes possible when we suspect that if we're throwing stones at the weirdo, we might just be re-crucifying Jesus. So when we break the unanimity over against and start to say, I wonder what makes those people tick. That's, if you like, how the wisdom of God brings the possibility of knowledge, of scientific learning, out of the midst of one of our ghastly scapegoating crises. So that's what I'd like to, to leave you with. When it comes to us learning about human sexuality, about the different participants in that long acronym, the key question opened up to us by Christ is, are these defects whom we know are wrong because we are right to cast stones at sinners? Or has the fact that Jesus occupied the place of the one at whom thrones were, stones were thrown opened up to us the possibility of being able to stand back from what is easiest for us to do and to ask the difficult questions? What is going on here? And how does this show us the richness, the wonder, the beauty of God and God's creation.
thank you very much for listening to me. And as I said, I hope to meet some of you before too long. Man, I, I just love that guy. I, I, I don't know what it is, man. I, I all, all of our speakers are like this. Uh, I think some of it is, um, I don't know about you, Tom, but uh, when I'm around certain gay people, I, I can tell they've been through so much. Mm. Like there's this beauty, God, make me, it just, it just, it's wrecking me right now. It's like, mm. there's this joy and this beauty of this man who has um, patiently insisted on the goodness of God his whole life um, in the midst of a, of a Catholic situation that, mm -hmm. that didn't want him to be that way. By the way, great story. Uh, if you guys read about James, and I, I'm looking at some of the chats, and you should go on his website, and I'll, I'll provide, I'll follow up with all this and make sure you have links, but um, great stories. He got a phone call from the Pope. Uh, about a year and a half ago, and Pope Francis they gave him the keys of the kingdom, quote, unquote, uh, on the phone. So that's a beautiful story. But, oh, goodness. Well, he has such a gentle presence. I mean, just, yeah. Boy, so likable. I know. Hey, um, I'll just do a couple quick questions because I know we, uh, due to technology, we run a little bit late. But I, I know certainly people are asking about atonement stuff, and that is the the bulk of what James talks about. And I'll just share uh, real quick in my own journey, um, the disassembling and the reassembling of what I thought was happening with atonement when Jesus died became the central thing for me. Well, let's see how dramatic I can make this. But, <laughs> but it's true. It literally changed everything in my life the day I decided God didn't need Jesus to die in order to forgive us. Mm. And it's embarrassing to say that I was about 46 years old before I really realized that. But um, it just, you know, we grow up in these particular ways. So um, that changed everything for me. I didn't, I didn't begin to change my views about LGBTQ just because um, I thought it was the nice thing to do, although I do think it's a nice thing to do. I did it uh, in, in part m much because of James and a lot of what he was writing about atonement and what he was saying just opened my eyes to Jesus occupying the place of the one who was cast out and who are we casting out so often. It's the LGBTQ. So and transgender and those kinds of things. Anyhow, atonement for me becomes the crux of it. And uh, did you see questions out there? I, I know someone asked. Yeah, there was one that I was going to pose to you before I I, I, I um, pose it, though. I should We should say to Roxana and Myra, who have their hands raised, and anybody else who has hands raised, just go ahead and uh, type in your questions in the chat, and we'll get to those. Tyson asked this question. I think it's 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 about how do you know what's good or bad? He said he was taught when he was younger that because of the fall, we don't have good judgment. We can't make that kind of call. But James seems to be saying, well, he didn't seem to me. He outright said, we have to decide. 
Uh, how do you think James would handle this? How do you handle that uh, kind of question, Jonathan, in terms of our ability to know what's good and bad? Oh, man, that is such a great question. And there's so many little nuances and complexity to it, I believe. I would like to think that I could approach it in the way that James is approaching it initially in terms of whatever bad is, Jesus occupied that space. You know, what, whatever the worst we can think of. Uh, that homeless brown-skinned man uh, from 2,000 years ago occupied that space and took that place. And so it turns all my notions of good and bad upside down. Um, and it, it literally has, and it literally does. And I recognize my own obsession. Now, I'd like to blame this on the church, and I probably have at times, but I'm also, I'm also pretty good at, at it myself, of labeling, of being fixated on what that bad is and labeling others bad. And the more I can label them bad, then I can draw those hard and fast lines and call me good uh, and the people that hang out with me good. And so this is a challenging question and a concept because there are now, gosh, I like to say, and I don't know if I stole this from someone like John Caputo or, or whom, but I like to say there are no more uh, rules except the unruly rule of love. Mm, yeah. Well, and that's kind of what he... Actually, my favorite part of James' presentation was right at the end where he brought, brings up that passage in which Paul is writing, and James translates it, whatever, everything is permissible, and I think James said, but not everything is good, or uh, what was some of the other words? Helpful. Or Helpful, yeah. In the NIV, it says not everything is beneficial, which I've always kind of liked that translation. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, changes the whole conversation to you know is this right in terms of rules to what kind of consequences what kind of outcomes or as johan says here in his chat uh it, what's life affirming or life giving in our choices rather than life denying or life limiting mm -hmm. is it kind of how you also think about those things yeah i think so and i think it's um it's frustrating for those of us who grew up really thinking we knew what was good and bad um, because it is a bit of a moving target. But, but it has to be, a, to me and my thinking, because life is fluid and context change and people changes. And what we do affirm is that God is with us across a wide spectrum of mental possibilities and capabilities and a wide spectrum of physical and emotional experiences and, and surely, surely God is with us across a spectrum of sexual experiences too. And I think um, in terms of sexuality, what is good and bad, to me, so much of it now revolves around consent mm. and what the other person, yeah, and being able to have, uh, and I, I actually I'm saying that, I know Dr. Monica is going to talk a bit, some about that tomorrow, but just having the, uh, ability to have to engage in conversations such that especially those who have historically been on the lower end of the power which has certainly been lgbtq and certainly been women they would have the the possibility and capacity and room and space to 
give their consent. Yeah, yeah. Roxana asked a question about uh, Adam and Eve and the tree and uh, God telling them what they shouldn't, shouldn't do. Um, how do you see James handling that kind of passage? I mean, it's right there at the beginning. It seems to be talking about morality in some sense. How, how do you think James responds to that? That's a great question. So um, this is hilarious that I'm answering for James. <laughs> he's in bed in Spain right now. So he's not <laughs> Well, um, he's got the Pope's endorsement, so you can also answer for the Pope, all right? <laughs> not like I haven't done that before. Uh, so James, if you guys don't know, is one of the foremost Girardians. Well, he's on anyone's short list of top Girardians in the world. So René Girard, French anthropologist, literary critic, uh, famously known for his mimetic theory and probably the most a well-known piece of the memetic theory is the scapegoating uh, process. And um, I'll do this real brief, because obviously we don't want to take a lot of time, but I think James will begin to unpack the the garden story in a memetic kind of a way, in the sense that, so memetic theory is, there's several points to it, but in a a real brief synopsis, it's the um, the idea that we desire we don't know what we desire Uh, so it's very uh, uh, lacanian in this way our desires are mediated by the other and so i don't know what i want and really until tom i see what you want and once i start to see what you desire then i want that thing interestingly enough uh, you begin to reciprocate because you see the energy that i give to that thing so now you want it as well and so we both begin to go for this thing and as we do conflict arises and um, we decide maybe we're going to go to blows. But at the last minute, we decide, you know, basically to save our skin, we decide, uh, we turn and we point at the person next to us. So just anyone, David, David Ramos, we, we pick at, we point at David and we say, oh, it's David's fault. And we scapegoat David. And Everybody knows it's David's fault. It's well, obvious. No. <laughs> that was a bad choice. We all know that's true anyhow. Right? <laughs> I hope David yeah. chimes in. Oh, good. Thank you, David. <laughs> Glad you're able to laugh. <laughs> so, this, so we scapegoat, and scapegoating is this mental kind of transference. It's more than blaming. It is blaming, but it's even more. It's where we offload our anxieties onto the back of David, which then justifies our uh, actions and our actions are we're now going to excommunicate, kill, murder, crucify, throw in the volcano, lynch on the tree, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all the things humans do, um, and then we we repeat the process, and that's where religion comes from. So that's as fast as I can do mimetic theory. James would look at the the uh, Garden of Eden story, and he would see it in a Girardian kind of way, and he would say something like um, that. Um, Eve saw God's kind of wholeness and um, heard then the serpent whispering to her, uh, hey, you know, kind of God's got it all together and you really should have what he has. And um, he told you not to eat this thing, but you really want this thing. And the attention that God gives to that tree then sends Eve uh, into thinking she needs that to eat that thing. She eats that thing. Adam senses that Eve has done it. Adam now sees the attention, that sees what Eve has desired. He desires what Eve desires. 
he eats it. There's this conflict that grows. Um, of course, they deal with the tension. The problem, the fallout happens with their boys. You know, Cain kills Abel um, and blames it. You know, blames it on Abel. He's jealous. Uh, it's this imitative, desirous nature. And then he moves east of Eden and uh, joins up with folks or builds the first civilization, depending on how you read Genesis, on uh, scapegoating murder and violence. And that becomes our founding story. So I did not do that justice, but um, I wanted to just say that real quick because it's a great question. How, how would Dr. James view it? He, I think he would through a Girardian angle. And if any of you don't know Rene Girard, well, that would be someone to read. Sorry, that's a lot of words. No, that was that was good. That was good. On that, I'm actually not seeing any other questions come up here. Is this a good time to transition? Do you think? I think so, especially since we started late. And I'll just say, um, uh, I know some others asked about atonement stuff. Yeah, uh, James writes a lot about that, and so you're going to want to find uh, him online, and or I'll send you some links or or follow follow up with me. Um, do you want to take a couple-minute break, or do you want to get into the next one since it's 8.15? I'm ready to roll, and I think other people can take breaks on their own, so, yeah. Probably. Um, so let's do that. If I do this correctly, we're going to go into uh, Elaine's video. Do you want to introduce her real quick? Yeah, I would. Uh, Elaine is a professor of religion at the University of Laverne, which is in the Los Angeles area of Southern Cal. She is a uh, does Latinx uh, studies as well. She has a really interesting background, both Catholic and Pentecostal. And um, she wrote a dissertation on questions about God's enjoyment. She calls it divine enjoyment. I even got a, a picture here, a theology of passion and exuberance. Uh, I don't know if that's going to show up or not there, <laughs> given my background. <laughs> uh, anyhow, uh, in this particular video, uh, Elaine uses language like open and relational theology and process theology quite a bit. And I'm guessing a lot of you aren't quite sure what that is, so let me just really briefly mention it. Uh, this is a way of thinking that begins with the notion that God is in real relationship with us, giving and receiving, uh, not just sort of God interested in God's own self. And then what Elaine does is plays this off in terms of what this means in, in, in terms of sexuality, with our engagement with others, a kind of a relational view of those things. So uh, this particular uh, presentation is shorter than James, but it's a little more, she throws a lot of $20,000 Academy words here occasionally. Don't let that... Uh, don't let that discourage you, because by the time you're done, you're going to kind of uh, warm up to that and have an idea of what she means, even if at the beginning you might not. How's that for an intro, Jonathan? Anything else we should add? That's a great intro. It's good. Okay, cool. All right, I'm going to hopefully share this correctly, and then we'll come back, let you debrief a little bit before we close out tonight. Great. Great. 